Hey, this is Travis Ford, producer of the Endurance Town USA podcast. Hey, just a quick note before we jump into the episode. I uh, want to let you know that the quality of today's episode is a little bit below our normal standard. We recorded this episode at the Slow Ultra, and unfortunately, there was a large amount of wind and a ton of background noise that our editor, Alex, did an incredible job cutting out, but that left the quality just a little bit below the standard that we normally have. So just want to throw that quick note out there for you guys before you continue listening, and we'll go from there. Welcome to the Endurance Town USA podcast, a state of mind destination where endurance athletes of all levels escape their daily grind and connect with their community. This episode of our Faces of Endurance miniseries is brought to you by Slow Ultra Trail Running Festival and Ultra Games, coming to San Luis Obispo, California this October. Find out more information by visiting sloultra.com. I'm Travis Ford, producer of the Endurance Town USA podcast. And today, our host, Samantha Pruitt, visited the U.S. Trail Running Association's annual conference in San Luis Obispo, California, to sit down with Kyle Rubida. If you're not familiar with Kyle, he's known widely as an avid runner and skier who's competed in numerous races from 5Ks to 100-mile distances, including the Trans Rockies earlier this year. A reason you may have heard of Kyle is while he runs all of these great distances, he does it with a severe visual impairment. In other words, he's blind. Currently living in Boston, Kyle works with the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired and United in Stride, which helps to recruit and train running sighted guides for these races. Kyle also provides technical assistance to race directors who want to create athletes with disability divisions in their own races. Sam and I grabbed our mobile studio equipment to sit down with Kyle at the trail running conference, and I'll let her take it from there. Hey, Kyle! Welcome to San Luis Obispo. Thanks. I'm super happy to be here, and this is a gorgeous little environment. Yeah. So you're here for the U.S. Trail Running Conference and the Slow Ultra. I am. Very excited to do both and kind of put the words that I'm going to share at the conference into action on Saturday during the race. Right. So you're going to be speaking at the conference, right? What's the subject matter? The subject matter is a little bit about creating new opportunities for trail races with a focus on creating opportunities to engage athletes of all abilities in races, how to set up athletes with disabilities divisions or divisions for folks who are runners who are visually impaired and how to recruit and support runners during those races. Okay. And that's because you have personal experience in this area. It is. It's a little bit personal and like all good jobs, uh, it's also work for me as well. I work at the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired and part of that work is running a program called United in Stride which is a website that helps match runners who want to be sighted guides with runners who are blind or visually impaired or vice versa. That's just for the general area or is that for the nation? It's for the entire U.S. and it's also trademarked in Canada as well. Wow. So it's an opportunity to kind of decentralize the matching of sighted guides in that whole process. So it allows someone to create a profile on United in Stride. Once they've done that, they can then do a search via their zip code. And so if you're a runner who wants to be a guide, you create a profile, you do a search by your zip code, and then it auto-populates any runners who are blind or visually impaired in your area. You can set it for 5 miles, 10 miles, 50 miles. And then you're able to, via the website, connect and reach out to them directly to say, hey, I'm in your area, I want a guide, do you need a guide? Or vice versa. So it's all over the U.S. It's great for regular running, doing races, uh, also helpful for instances like this weekend where you're traveling and you either want to do a race or you're on vacation and you want to get in a run and you'd rather not spend 
a lot of time in a treadmill in a hotel. Exactly. So you can reach out to guides in that area. When you're traveling, you want to experience the area. And exactly, yeah. It's yeah. always more enjoyable getting outside and running, so it's a great platform for that. Okay. Well, tell us a little bit about where you grew up, where you were born, and your family and family dynamics. So I grew up in Sanford, Maine, which is the southern part of Maine, super active, played every sport imaginable, okay. started downhill and alpine skiing when I was 11, also the same year that I got diagnosed with my eye disease at age 11, okay. and thankfully it didn't really impact me for a number of years, so I was active playing all sports throughout high school and remained active into my early 20s as well. And what disease was it? Or is so it? the eye disease is called retinitis pigmentosa, which is essentially a pigment of the retina. Okay. So in short, it's so my I had all these. They're almost like islands, and they started off as really small islands and blind spots, and then over time, those islands grow and grow. Oh. So they kind of take up. You know, they just over time, it's a take progressive. Real estate. They take up more real estate. Uh, the cost is pretty high for the real estate, mm-hmm. and it, uh, you know, over time, it's a regressive eye disease. So it's likely now I have about three to four percent of a visual field. So in as both I look, eyes? in both eyes, they're almost equal. My right, it's a little. I have less, slightly less vision in my right. Uh, but as I'm looking at you, I can kind of see your eyes, and that's about it. So it's my best feature. There we go. Perfect. Perfect. And over time, it's likely that I'll probably lose all my vision, uh, but I'm hanging on right now. And when I was diagnosed at 11, they said I'd be totally blind by 20. So I greatly exceeded that. So Okay. Thank goodness for that. So you were doing sports. You found out. How did you get diagnosed then? What was happening that made you even be alarmed or aware of the situation might be? It was just a general eye doctor appointment with my town optometrist, and Mm -hmm. he actually noticed the pigment in the back of my eye on the retina mm-hmm. and things got really quiet in the room as an 11 year old and wow. we went to a specialist in Portland, Maine and they quickly referred us to Boston and said we can't handle this you should go check out a specialist in Boston so okay. it was very all the doctors said it was very uncommon for the optometrist to pick that up in just a regular eye disease so in hindsight I'm you know thankful that I knew at that early age rather than getting to age 30 and then figuring out, oh, this is why I haven't, you know, couldn't see it dark. And then it really impacted the rest of my vision as well. Okay. And your parents and siblings? I have an older brother and a younger sister by five years, and none of them are impacted by it. It is a hereditary disease. It is hereditary. It is hereditary, but I can't figure out kind of where the lineage comes from that. So I didn't pay attention a lot in biology, Mm -hmm. um, but it has something to do with, I think they're both carriers of the recessive gene. Oh, interesting. Okay. Something of that nature. Uh-huh. And you grew up playing sports, and what what was the name of the town you grew up in? Uh, Sanford, Maine. Okay. Did you stay there for your whole life until, like, graduating high school? Yeah, I graduated high school there, went to school in Western Mass, mm-hmm. and then upon finishing school, I had a job in Vermont, realized that Vermont doesn't have a ton of public transportation. Oh. And I've never had a license, so okay. I quickly pivoted and moved in with a six friends in Boston. Six friends? Six friends in Boston. I lived in a second Sounds living like a room. a party house. It was a good party house. Uh, There's, yeah, multiple living rooms. One that was a bar and one that was my bedroom and one that was our actual living room. So that was 1998, and I've been in Boston since then. Okay. 
fantastic. Yeah. So did you continue playing sports and, you know, uh, all these different sports or were you, at what point did you venture into running? So I always ran more just to for stay fit for cross yeah. training and soccer practice. You had to run three miles beforehand. And, you know, when you're 15, you kind of hate that, or at least I did. Mm-hmm. And in my, you know, when I moved to Boston, I still played, you know, intramurals and recreational activities, but probably by my mid twenties, it was becoming more and more challenging to continue doing that. I played on like a work softball team and it was just hard to track the ball, follow the ball in the outfield. So I stopped doing that and which was really tough because baseball is kind of is and continues to be my first love. So that was kind of the, the first sport that I was really impacted in and still probably emotionally still really impacted. Yeah. And then I also grew up skiing and took a little break from college. Downhill bombing. Yeah, mm-hmm. took a break for a year or two in college and lived in a mountain and skied every day. Wow. And by the mid-20s, as my eye disease was progressing a little bit, I kind of even stopped skiing for the most part. We skied maybe once a year, twice a year, but it was more social than enjoyable just because I'd have to ski behind someone and I can kind of do, I wasn't independent and it became much more, let's go skiing with friends rather than really enjoying the time on the hill. Yeah. So you lost your freedom in the respect to the sport or your connection to the sport. Yeah. I couldn't ski up to my ability, which was really frustrating. Oh, Anytime yeah. that Because you were really kind of a super jock. You had all these, you know, skills going in that you, well, you tried all these different sports. Yeah. So, and then when you had to transition out of doing them with others in order to still be able to participate. It definitely changes the dynamic and the experience. It does. It changes the dynamic. And I realize now, you know, it took about five to ten years to kind of reframe and and restart the mental side of how I thought about things and the emotional side. And I've learned that I wasn't necessarily, things weren't being taken away from me. I was giving up on them. So I learned, you know, five to seven years later, I started running and then as I was running on my own and falling more and hitting people during races, I learned about sighted guides. So that really allowed an opportunity for me to run confidently and safely. And then a couple years after that, I started skiing with sighted guides. And I still remember the second run I made when I was skiing with a sighted guide. My wife said to me, she's like, your body posture and your dynamic and the smile on your face, I haven't seen you in a long, long time. Oh, you know, wow. Just being able to ski with guides so really allowed me to fall back in love with skiing. Oh, I love that. Yeah, which is great. Awesome. I mean, anytime that you can, you know, just the guide is there to share their sight and make sure that you're safe. But I controlled where I turned, how fast I went, what trails we skied, and it brought back a lot of that sense of freedom and, and um love that I had in the sport that I, or an activity that I hadn't had in a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. When you were diagnosed and then there was a gradual progression, it sounds like, mm-hmm. how did your family adapt, your parents and your siblings? I think we all, I think it was hard for everyone. Mm-hmm. I think we all process that news and that information very differently. And I think my sister was young enough where she didn't quite you know, have to kind of understand what it was. My brother was a couple of years older than me, but it didn't, at that point in time, it didn't affect a lot of my day-to-day activities. Okay. It, one of the first identifiers of the eye disease is a loss of night vision. So okay. in reflection, I certainly, we understood like, oh, during night baseball games or while playing hide and go seek at night in your neighborhood, that's why I was horrible at doing that. Um, but other than that, it didn't really impact a lot of things outside of, you know, not being able to drive and making that decision when I was around 16. But I 
kind of learned from my father that the best way to deal with an issue is not to deal with it and not really to think about it. Okay. So when you're 11, you, you know, a lot of learned behavior from your parents and that's kind of what I learned. And not to say that that wasn't the right thing, but, you know, as I started going to therapy in my late twenties and early thirties to kind of unwind a lot of that anger and that sense of loss, I learned that maybe there was ways to do things differently. But I also think that as a family, we tried to figure out, uh, you know, on the fly as much as we could. And it's also why I started skiing at the time. You know, doctors said, oh, you should really try to have him start skiing because he can do that forever. And that has turned out to be true, which is great. So you're still skiing? I'm still skiing and very thankful that, you know, my parents started getting us skiing and we jumped in, you know, both feet first and we were weekend warriors skiing. Every (laughs) every weekend we went skiing, we had season passes and spent every family vacation up there. And it was a great time of life to, to be able to experience that. Very lucky. Where did you go to college? I went to Westfield State, which is in Western Mass, just about 10 to 15 minutes west of Springfield. Okay. And what did you study? Studied communications. Oh, nice. It's serving you well now in life. (laughs) So it's it's been full circle in which I, halfway through college, when I went, I took a year or two off. I went back. I realized I wanted, I was really lazy. So I needed, and I still continue I to be lazy a little bit. So I needed a motivation. Like money has never motivated me. Yeah. So when I went back, I kind of wanted to do more nonprofit work, but it was just too late to switch majors. And I was also started paying for college on my own. Mm. So I continued with the communications degree, spent five or eight years working with folks living in shelters, helping them find permanent housing. And then I started working for an elected official doing like press and communications work. And oh, I was like, cool. oh, yeah, this is kind of what I went to school for. Uh-huh. So I've always been in nonprofits, program, organizing work, but I also see things through the lens of communications and marketing and, and social media in a sense. No, that's so powerful now, but you decided yeah. not to stay in politics, apparently. I did a two-year tour, and I learned a tremendous amount. It was a great. It was the first city councilor who was Latino in the city of Austin, so it was a great time to be there. And but politics is also a pretty challenging industry to work in. And although we affected a lot of great change and impacted some really good policies, I gravitated more towards the kind of community-based nonprofit work. So it also sounds like you have your own family. I do. I have a wonderful wife and a daughter who is 10. Awesome. Yeah, no, they're great. They're both incredibly supportive. I They trudge out to all the races I do and cheer and crew and allow me to run for five to six hours every Saturday <laughs> and Sunday. Well, and they stand around and wait. Exactly. Break, well, it's funny. It's, you know, so I took some time off. I was injured this past winter and they were teasing me saying, you know, I wasn't running on the weekends. They're like, when are you going to get back to running? And, like, we want you out of the house on Saturday mornings because I was so amped up with so much in- energy. You were? Like, all right. Yeah. I'm like, all right, we got to clean. We got to do dishes. What's the program for today? Oh, you're a structure and, guy. Yeah. Structure. They're like, well, wait, you can't, like, I, you can't have it both ways, right? They're like, well, we like you running. Maybe not five hours, but two hours is good. So when you get out and do that. But they're incredibly supportive. My, I just had the great fortune to run the Trans Rockies six-day stage race. Yeah, that's freaking and, awesome, by the way. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. What an amazing opportunity. And, and they both were there for the entire time as volunteers. So my wife spent six days breaking down and setting back up 300 tents. Mm-hmm. And my daughter did tents for a day, then uh, requested a transfer to finish line catering. 
So she set up all the food and <laughs> she everything. She's like a smart kid. I like her already. She's super smart. Uh, she gets all of her brains from my wife. And so it's, you know, pretty remarkable to have your family there. Also, my wife being there, but, you know, for a 10-year-old to take six that. days of her summer vacation to be able to do that and get up at 6 o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. for six days in a row, sleep in a tent, and then essentially have to work all day was was really cool. And so for me to be able to, you know, run during the day, but also to have them at the finish line cheering me and putting the medals on me at the end of the day, it was uh, a very, very powerful experience. So you have a family and you are having a, a great life. It sounds like, you know, you're, you're moving in the direction of finding your own career path, but at what point did you actually find that your passion was going to be also giving back and others in this way and being more involved with this association, this foundation and organizing um, guided guides for other people? So I made a conscious decision. So I spent most of my life working as an organizer in nonprofits, and I consciously in different sectors, sectors, mostly working with uh, individuals who were lower income, either whether it was working with folks staying in shelters, or I worked for a community development corporation that built affordable housing and did community organizing and leadership development work in a mostly predominantly Latino community. Okay. So I kind of wanted to go, quote unquote, work with my people. So yep. I, I sought out a job for uh, for my tribe, uh, started working in an organization that works with folks who are blind or visually impaired. And immediately, I wasn't doing a lot of the sighted guide piece then. Um, United in Stride, we started about two years after I was uh, started working at the Mass Association for the Blind. So it's been a nice, it's about 20% of my work, okay. but I think most folks will say, and I will agree that it's the, the work I enjoy the most, but we also have a year-round volunteer program in which we match volunteers with individuals who are blind for grocery shopping, you know, day-to-day activities like grocery shopping, reading mail. But so when I started... community-based, like yeah. within how much radius of where you live? Where? So the organization I work for is statewide, so yeah. we work all throughout Massachusetts, the volunteer program right now has just over 300 volunteers. Wow. And That's works fantastic. with, yeah, it's great. It's really powerful to see. And when I started, we, a coworker who'd been there for many, many years, someone called and said, Hey, I'm looking for someone to go to the gym with. I just lost my sight. Mm-hmm. Coworker said, Well, we don't really do that. I kind of asked why. We changed it. And then it grew from that to there's all these folks, myself included. Some of it was selfish, right? I wanted to be sighted guides to run with throughout the year. Of so we started doing more programming around providing sighted guides for folks on a year-round basis, whether they're training for 5K or just going out for walks or doing the level of running that I do. Okay. So it's uh, it's been a nice part of being able to kind of combine a passion that has now evolved in terms of adaptive sports and creating opportunities for folks with, you know, day gig as well. So you say adaptive sports. Is there other people besides um, people that have sight challenges? Is there different types of disabilities represented as well? Not that we work with. So we primarily work with folks who are blind or visually impaired, but I, you know, I ski with Vermont Adaptive Ski and Sports and also another adaptive ski program in New Hampshire. So I'm around folks of different abilities, whether they be amputees or intellectual disabilities. So it's nice to to be able to kind of put us all in the same room and and get support through a program like that. And it's also really powerful for my daughter to experience that as well. I think her awareness around people with different abilities is, Mm. is really strong. And I'm hoping that you know, as she develops into a young, strong woman, you know, her compassion and understanding 
for individuals of that nature is uh, going to continue to grow. Well, for sure, and you're role modeling that. And it sounds like your wife is doing the same. Yes, my wife is an incredible role model for my daughter, and it's uh, very, very lucky for someone to. She also has always worked in nonprofits. Okay. Um, so doing most of the behind the scenes, finances, mm-hmm. operations, HR, whereas I'm more of the kind of the community based person. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also how our household is structured, where she <laughs> handles all the bills, and I handle yeah. a lot of the play dates and the, the social interactions. So it's great how that plays out both in a work Good and in a personal life. Yeah, so it, so it's great. And it's really important, I think, for my daughter to see. And there are certainly times where I I understand that it's it's beneficial for my daughter to see not necessarily me doing what I'm doing because of my vision loss, but like anyone out on the course, right? I think part of the thing that's beautiful in 100-mile races or 50-mile races is just the up-and-down nature of you're at a really high, then you're at a really low, and oh, yeah. how do you pull yourself through? And I think that's life. And I talked to her a lot about, as well as my wife does, that you know my daughter has a very privileged up- upbringing right now, um, but at some point in time, you know, it's not going to be that easy. Mm-hmm. And I think the more that we instill that ability to kind of push through those low times and to even out things is really important. And to me, that's what's also really fulfilling about long distance running and ultra running is, you know, it's not, it's not easy not to say that running five K's or marathons are easy as well, but right. for me, it's much more mental than physical, which is great. Interesting. So I'd love to hear from you. Like, obviously you had running as part of your lifestyle, fitness lifestyle growing up. But at what point did you decide to register for your first race and commit to training specifically for a race and setting that goal? So I was, so probably about 10 years ago, I was close to 250 pounds and being pressured from my doctor to go on cholesterol medicine. And my father has type 2 diabetes and is experiencing some tremendous, tremendous health issues from that right now. And I was on the track for diabetes as well. And I, my daughter was two. And quite honestly, it was, I was getting tired just playing with her and bending over and tying my shoes and picking mm-hmm. her up. So I started walking. Then I started running a little bit um, by myself. And I was amazed that I could still do it. I did it safely. And I just started running from there. And I Got addicted to it. It became a regiment where I ran three days a week and then five days a week and then six. And I was visiting my in-laws at one point and I went out. I wanted to run, I think, for an hour and a half. I had had a cheap watch that didn't do GPS, just a time. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, I want to run for an hour and a half. And I ran for an hour and a half. And I was like, well, I can either go back to the house and hang out with my father-in-law and okay. do idle chit chat, or I can keep on running. Ah, so I kept on running. Nothing I ran. personal to the father in law. Exactly. But. No, no. <laughs> and it had like an hour and 50 minutes. And I was like, oh, I should just do two hours. So I ran literally up and down their street for like 10 minutes. I called it a day at like two hours and one minute. And then I said to myself, wow, I'm never going to be, when am I ever going to be able to run two hours again? Okay. So that was, I think, July or August. Yep. Yeah, that was July, August of, I think, 2010. So I signed up for a half marathon that fall. Okay. And so that was the first official race that I I'd ever run. How old were you? That's good cool. question. 35-ish, 36. Okay. okay. Yeah, give or take. And you run your first race. How was it? Did you have a guide? 
I did not have a guide, but okay. I, my sister-in-law, who's an incredibly active runner and ultra runner, she came up to Maine. We ran a, the Portland Half Marathon, so I did run the first couple miles. Actually, I ran the first 10 miles with her, okay. partly in the beginning because I knew the crowds were going to be a little challenging. Mm-hmm. And then at mile 10, I think I experienced like my first runner's high where I was like, wow, I still feel good. I'm going to take off. And it was actually really funny. So I, the course was fine. It was all on roads and I felt comfortable. And then at mile 11 and a half, they kind of, you had to switch. Uh, it was a two-way street, but with a big grassy barrier in between. Okay. So you literally got to switch. Sides of the road. Yeah. And I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> so I had to like walk and figure out where to hop up onto the curb. And I had much better usable vision then than I, than I do now. Okay. Um, so that was funny that almost right when I took off from her, I ran into that. I was like, shoot. <laughs> so then, I, you know, I finished the race and it was a great experience. I, I think I wanted to do under two hours, and I think I hit 158 or 159, oh. which was great. Yeah. Great. That's legit, dude. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, it was a good experience. So road running was pretty much where you started, just out of that's what was available, and that's what made obviously the most sense at that time in your life. But at some point, you transitioned into trails and then eventually ultras. What was that path? So the I'd run a handful of marathons, and quite frankly, I was getting bored of the marathon training. Mm-hmm. You know, there's only so many 20-mile training runs that you can do. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually signed up for a timed 12-hour race. I intentionally picked one that was a 5K loop on pretty much pavement at a short period of grass and dirt, okay. but it was very runnable, which mm-hmm. I wanted it to be. So it was more the ultra component, the longer distance component than the trail race. So that was the first ultra I did. And I remember I pinky swore my daughter in the morning that I would run the full 12 hours regardless, of, regardless oh, of the distance. Yeah. So, and I remember doing... No matter how slow, Exactly. How yeah. And I remember doing the runner's math. I had probably four or five guides with me that race over the period of time. And I remember doing the runner's math and I was holding my breath that we wouldn't have enough time to do one more loop. I'm like, please don't, you know, cause I had roughly like 40 minutes. I yeah. was averaging about 40 to 45 yeah. minutes for a 5k loop. And he's like, no, we got 48. We got one oh, more. And I was like, oh, and I looked no, at my daughter. I was like, oh, I promised you that I did it. So I did one more 5k loop. Awesome. Yeah. So that was great. And then growing up in Maine, I enjoyed hiking and being outdoors. And I met a few more folks who were doing, you know, trail running i think that natural progression from ultra running quote unquote is you know to get into the trails yeah so i made that transition okay and you were already comfortable on trails because you were an outdoorsy kind of guy or you had to learn that as a completely new skill with limited vision i had to completely re- relearn it as a skill but also as guiding oh. so i had a great network of sighted guides who i just started transitioning to hey i want to go out for a trail run okay. and i quickly learned that it was much easier to recruit trail runners to be my guides than it was recruiting or training my road runners to be trail guides oh. i just think there's okay. an intrinsic learning curve there interesting i've also learned now that hikers tend to make the best sighted guides because i think part of guiding me on the trail is figuring out the path of least resistance. Yes. And I think hikers intrinsically just have that, right? If you're out for a solid five-hour hike, you're going to try to pick the path that's easiest to hike. So some of my strongest guides, including... Trail runners should be doing that too, FYI. Yes, I know. (laughs) Exactly. It's just called common sense. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I had to kind of almost re-recruit or start from scratch recruiting trail guides and, and ultra guides. Uh, to make that transition. And then I had to relearn and, and figure out how to do it. And I actually DNF, the only two races I've DNF'd are my first two trail races. Okay. And what, part, what went wrong? 
the time. So I did a, uh, I did a, no, I pulled both. So my first trail race was a 12 K with an incredibly trusted guide, but it was a very technical up and down trail. Took us probably three hours longer to get through half of it than I anticipated. So part of it was mental. I also had made a commitment to babysit some friends kids at like noon and it was 11 and I still had plenty of miles to go. Um, so I pulled the plug there. You take your commitment seriously. Well, it's hard at that time. Yeah. We were doing a lot of babysit yep. sharing. So, sure. and then the second one was, uh, essentially a 10 mile loop. And after the, and it was a 50 K and after the first loop, I'd fallen two or three times, rolled an ankle. It just wasn't enjoyable. And it was also much too, it can be a lot longer. And I was nervous about the cutoffs. So I dropped, and in hindsight, you know, my wife was there, and she was pushing me, saying, don't drop, don't drop. And it was interesting that I had a very good guide with me on the roads who guided me for the marathons, very accomplished Ironman, but that, he never runs trails. Oh. So he was actually saying, he's like, man, my calves and my ankles are he's killing like, me now. He was complaining? Yeah, oh, he's yeah. like, I, I totally support. He was, he was only doing that one loop, but he was like, I totally support you dropping. He's like, that's super technical. I would never do that. Oh, my so I gosh. I also learned to have... <laughs> guides that had pretty uh, good yeah. ultra trail running background because it's just it's part of that right and totally. and if i didn't have a great network so i leaned on three now good friends who have the same eye disease and who are all accomplished trail runners mm. i leaned on them and said i'm really struggling and i need some support and trying to figure out how to run these trails so they provide me a tremendous amount of support they actually one buddy from Colorado filmed the video and kind of how to use trekking poles and lighting and how to maneuver some of the wow. roots and rocks. You developed your own sport team. I did. I love it. I did. And if it wasn't for them, and if it wasn't for the fact that I had already been signed up for 100K in the fall, yeah. I probably would have moved out of trail running. Wow. But now for me, I like it because of that challenge. I like it because where I'm at with my usable vision on the roads, it's certainly hard to train and train to my capacity at times mm. because of finding guides okay. but in the actual moment of a road race my vision because my guides are so great doesn't always slow me down okay. it doesn't impact me but trail running it totally does so i actually like that challenge of knowing that this is going to be harder than i anticipated which i think again ties to the mental piece and the preparation of there are going to be some really slow miles yes. because when it gets too technical i just have to walk yeah, and so you basically have come to terms with that, or you continue to come to terms with the fact that every race is different, every course is different, every experience is going to be different. Help, that's for all of us, right? Mm -hmm. And then your added element is um, maybe I'm fitter and faster and more capable, but based on today's terrain and what I have to navigate right now, I need to be kind to myself and be mindful. And listen to my guide, I guess. Yes. Right? Said a lot better than sometimes I think. I mean, okay. I come to terms with it most of it, but like all men, I have a big ego. Humans. And that's not a man. I know, that's but a we, we tend to have an over sense inflated, <laughs> an inflated sense of ego. But <laughs> I I still get frustrated. You know, it trains Rockies. There's, you know, coming off a Hope Pass on, I think, day two, unknown to me, it was a, about a seven-mile stretch of just super technical trails that we had to walk. And... I ended up being dead last okay. and the sweepers were behind me and I just got in a space where I was pretty nasty to myself. I had to tell my guides, I, I stopped and said, keep on walking. I just need a minute to wrap my head around this. And yeah. then we hit a flat section 
And that's when I want to hammer it, right? So yeah. that's partly because I, I don't want to be last, right? But it's also part of how I run is, and it's also when I'm a little nervous or not nervous, but it's hard to anticipate a pace, even this Saturday, at race slow, because I don't know where I can run hard and what the course profile is like. And there are some trail races where if it's a dirt road and it's really runnable, you know, I'll hammer it and I'll get down to, you know, a pace that I shouldn't be running at. But I know that in two to three miles, it's going to be a technical section where I have built-in walking breaks. Right. So, and I hear people, if I, you know, cruise by someone on a dirt road runnable section, I kind of hear folks going like, oh, he's going out way too hard. <laughs> but I also know that, you know, at mile six, there's a super rugged section that I'm going to walk it. So that's mm-hmm. my walking break and I need to make up, quote unquote, those miles now. So um, depending on the day, I'm mentally able to kind of prepare and, and manage that in the moment better than others. Mm-hmm. Well, I would just point out the obvious that is you're just totally human because I've been in that exact same situation, cussing like a sailor at anybody and everybody around me with the sweeper chasing me, yeah. you know, just total train wrecks out there because that happens to all of us at some point. Yeah. And then coming to grips with um, how to deal with that is challenging no matter no matter yeah. what the dynamic is. Yes, yeah. and I think that's the joy of it, and that's the game of ultra running, right? So you try to figure out, you know, how to ride it when it's going well and yes. how to prepare for when it's not, and then mm-hmm. really how to come to terms and be present when it's not, and not necessarily hope for things to get better, but really just embrace that deep, dark place and know that at some point it's going to get better. And you're yes. either going to hit an aid station and refuel yeah. or the trail terrain is going to be better or you're running with someone who's lifting you up and i think again in that life cycle of things aren't always great um you know that's how for me ultras are are challenging and fun Mm. to be able to kind of push through all of that some of my best races i at one point in the race was laying in the dirt like the game was over right i mean i didn't pull the plug yet but it was just a matter of seconds Mm -hmm. (laughs) if i have the possibility probably would have happened but yeah so that's just you know being willing to toe the line and see what what goes down yeah and knowing that that may come really early right it may come at mile 10 oh, yeah and, you know i just ran the vermont 100k and it, yeah. i went into it really under because of an injury and at mile 20 i was like i'm done mm-hmm. and my wife is like you said you wouldn't drop unless your hip was really bothering you how's your hip i'm like it's fine and she's like <laughs> yeah and go mm-hmm. and by mile 30 35 i felt a lot better you yeah. know and yeah. you know i got food in me and energy levels came back and scenery changed so right. it all works out so I have a couple questions for you. Um, where does this come from? This this giver, this doer personality, this value system that you have, where does that come from? Because it seems to carry over in all these aspects of your life. A lot of it is paying it forward. Mm. I know that I have greatly benefited from a tremendous amount of generosity and strong friendships. And I really want to pay that forward and, and contribute to that sense of community. Okay. And especially in the running community, they're lately, you know, I'm a mid-packer at best. So at times I get just as excited about spending all weekend at a race and seeing folks who I've met on Facebook or I saw last week at a run. I enjoy that and the sense of community sometimes even more than the actual race playing out. And Or I get really jazzed about, oh, I can't wait to run with so-and-so instead of just running my race um, and, and socializing on the trail. So I think a lot of it comes from that. Uh, a lot of it comes from trying to instill some really good values in my daughter. Yes. Mm-hmm. Not to say that I hope she 
turns into a radical socialist nonprofit worker. But whatever she does pursue, <laughs> right? I do kind of hope her that purpose and passion. Yeah, exactly. But I do hope that she continues to hold some really strong values and a strong sense of community, and and wanting to be and knowing the importance and the value of of giving back and being active in your community, whatever said community is. Was there anyone or any particular situation even um, where you were mentored or it was really like a pinnacle moment where you really just, you know, found this purpose or did it just evolve naturally? Some of it evolved and some of it was also just thinking about my eye disease and in my late teens knowing that I was different than other folks and that was really new to me. And, you know, I grew up in a very homogenous white, middle, upper-class background where mm-hmm. things were pretty easy for me, even though my parents worked incredibly hard mm-hmm. to put us in that situation. But for me, as a my actual upbringing was, was pretty fortunate. And I think I, over time, realized just through self-reflection and not overly deep self-reflection, but just looking around. I still remember going to the city of Boston for the first time and seeing folks on the streets. And I had no idea what that was all about. Oh, and then I took a cross-country train trip uh, to visit my brother in San Diego and I was in LA and I saw even more folks on the streets. I was like, wow, what is this all about? You know, you hear about folks who are living without a home, but you don't really know and don't see them all the time, particularly growing up in Maine. So I think that's why partly I gravitated more towards hunger and homelessness and housing, um, right out of college. And, Mm -hmm. you know, first it started working with folks in shelters, finding them housing, but then I, you know, a lot of what I do is trying to figure out how to get more upstream and get more at the cause of the issue. And I could find folks housing in shelters for a lifetime, but the real issue was building more affordable housing. So, And how do we make it before they don't hit the street? Right? Exactly. How exactly. We, how can we be proactive? Yep. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's fantastic. Well, I'm sure that your community is really impacted by who you are as a person. Is there anything in particular that you're doing now that maybe is your next calling? Or where do you feel you're going to direct this energy in the next three to five years? I hope to continue running. I'm really focused a lot right now as my vision is decreasing. And I'm starting to wrap my head around the fact that probably sooner rather than later, there's a strong chance that I won't have any sight. Okay. That, you know, so right now when I'm running, I, I still can see landscapes. Okay. I can't necessarily see what's on the trail. I can't differentiate between rocks and roots, and I can sometimes see if the trail goes left or right. Sometimes I can't, which is why I have to rely on sighted guides, but I can still see landscapes, so I'm really focused on getting out and doing as many races in different parts of the country and using that as an opportunity to kind of see, and that's a big reason why Trans Rockies was at the top of my list, and I was very fortunate that, you know, the race directors gave me a a media entry to that. Part of the reason why I wanted to sign up for Saturday's race was another opportunity to run trails on the West Coast and being able to kind of see where that's at, so certainly focusing on trying to travel as much as possible through doing more races. I do want to continue kind of pushing the envelope of runners who are blind or visually impaired doing trail races. I think there's a tremendous capacity and opportunity. There's some great athletes out there and there's already been some amazing folks. I have peers or folks going back 30, 40 years who've been trail running, but I really want to kind of lift up more folks to, to, get out in the woods and experience the outdoors and 
whether it's an ultra or a 5k trail race, you know, provide opportunities or provide some awareness to be able to do that. And so would you do some coaching then? Mentoring? I try to do as much mentoring as I can right now. A lot of it is informal, but just because the, the community of runners who are blind or visually impaired are so close knit, I do spend a lot of time talking to folks about how to trail run. I worked with the Achilles International Group in Boston. Mm -hmm. So we actually did about a year or two ago, we did a trail running workshop. So we got about five or six folks who were blind and visually impaired who had never been out on trails. We took them out on a trail run, trained a couple of sighted guides. So that sort of stuff is really important to me and enjoyable. I also think just being out at the U.S. trail running conference and having the opportunity to increase that awareness with race directors and having conversations about how we can create more opportunities, how we can make races not necessarily more inclusive, but just increase the awareness about the benefits of being inclusive. And I think it's not necessarily if you build it, will they come? It's more there are folks who want to do it right now. There are folks who are out there hiking with very low vision and may not always know that, wow, I can go out and run and there are races out there that I can run at. And I think part of it is also just the natural progression of, you know, if you have sight, you spend a whole lot of time running on roads and then you learn about this amazing community of trail runners. Mm -hmm. So I think it's similar to that, but I think folks also can benefit from a little bit more support around it as well. Oh, absolutely. I'm really interested, and I hope that my audience is too. I'm sure that they are. Um, I want to hear about your experience running in nature and having limited vision and perspective on the beauty of the earth and nature that you're running in and how you process that, internalize that. What's the dialogue going on inside your mind and your heart when you're out in nature? It's a big piece of why I do what I do. Like at the end of the day, certainly I love competing and I love in long distances to do that, but it's also really just great to be outside mm. and it's great to hear the birds chirping and the views and running through Colorado and the mountainscapes and the meadows and the tall Aspen forests. Like that's when I really feel like this is, this is where I should be. And it's those long stretches of, you know, the buffed out nice runnable trails in a great landscape where I, just start laughing out loud and just start smiling. And and that's really, and that's what I love. And I also struggle with, you know, as my vision is decreasing, I still struggle with how much will I enjoy trail running if and when I can't see at all. And, you know, and I'm pretty real and honest in saying that, yeah, I can still see landscapes. Mm -hmm. Certainly when I'm running, I more often now I actually have to stop my guides and say, can we take a minute? I just want to pick up my head and look around Yeah, because I can't, you know, I'm so laser focused on following their back Yes, that that's all I do for miles and miles. So if there's a great landscape, I have to actually stop, pick my head up and look around. Okay. So I'm able to still see that. Um, I also have to stop and can't do it in the moment, but I'm really nervous about if and when I do lose my vision, how much I will still be able to enjoy it. And mm. I've just learned that I just have to accept that and, and continue to think and reflect on it. Um, but it's, it's something that is certainly in the forefront of, of, you know, the next three to five years as my vision continues to decrease, will I be able to enjoy it as much without those visual cues? Well, I'm assuming that your other senses are hopefully functioning at a higher level because they're having a different experience too, Mm -hmm. right? And so 
Um, I think a lot of us could learn from you in that sense of maybe we need to also pay attention to our other senses because we take the sighted component for granted. And so that's there. That beauty is there. We sort of take that piece for granted, but maybe we're not actually paying attention to the birds, the footsteps, the water, all of the different elements. You know, we run with headphones a lot of the time. We run with our phones. We run with all these elements that distract us from the actual experience in nature. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I certainly think it's, it's interesting that it's one of the biggest myths around folks who are experiencing vision loss is that automatically, you know, there there's this thought that, oh, you lose your sight, you're now Superman, you have great hearing, great smell. Um, but that happens, but it happens because it has to happen, right? So you have to be much more tuned and focused and actually train yourself to rely on your hearing more or your, sen- or your other senses. It doesn't automatically just poof overnight. It happens. So I think in trail running, I certainly have to rely on that much more often particularly it's interesting that when i'm running with guides you know partly because they're actually talking and i'm listening i'm usually the first person that hears a runner coming up behind us and i'll be like oh hey let's pull over runner's gonna pass and my guide will be like oh i, I had no idea mm-hmm. uh, so i certainly have to rely on that a lot I, I think i do hear you know birds and and other you know the, that environmental piece of it maybe more often than others and i think it's just an added bonus to the experience that i'm i'm gleaning from all of that while also still being able to kind of pull a little bit of that, you know, visual sensory piece of it. But I certainly think that I, I do have to be a little bit more in tune with all my senses to kind of get that full experience. Mm-hmm. If you were um, producing your own race, what would it be? Anything like the sky's the limit. If you were going to dream up a race and race directors, we do this all the time, but yeah. we can't stop. This is a thing we don't turn off in our yeah. head. It's, it's a sickness. We come up with all these crazy ideas about races. But if I said, Hey, Kyle, let's go put on a race, come to San Luis Obispo, whatever, it's sky's the limit. What would it be? What would it look like? Prior to Trans Rockies, I would say there'd be no elevation and no climbing, but through Trans Rockies, I actually really embraced the climbing. So I'd say a significant amount of climbing wow. with some very, very runnable downhill. Okay. It's interesting that both from a safety perspective and sometimes even from a pace perspective, mm-hmm. I can move quicker up a hill than I can downhill because of running downhills and technical terrain is much more of a safety hazard for yeah. me. Because if I'm hiking or jogging uphill, I fall, I'm just going to fall into the hill mm-hmm. for the most part. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I'm running downhill, if I trip and I fall, I'm going for a pretty good ride. Do you use trekking poles? I haven't always used trekking poles, although when I was at Trans Rockies, so I've started to play with this technique. So when I run on roads, I run with what we call like a soft tether. So I'm connected side by side with my sighted guide, holding either a strap or a shoelace. Traditionally, for the past number of years, when I've been trail running, I run right behind my guide without a tether, without being connected to them. And so they just tell me everything that's, they're stepping over, they're calling out. So roots, rocks, big roots, step down, go left, go right. We're slowing down here. Now I'm at a place where it's particularly in single track, it's harder to kind of follow them. So I I just had some students at Olin College of Engineering fabricate trekking poles into what we call like a rigid tether. So they essentially took off the ends of both ski poles or trekking poles, put some tape and some uh, like a wristband around it. So now I hold that with my guide in front of me and I run behind them. And then what I ended up doing at Trans Rockies is that on the big uphill climbs and even some downhills, I would just use that kind of tether as a trekking pole. 
and it helps with my balance. I also have incredibly poor and very weak ankles. Um, my orthopedic always says like the combination of you having, you know, trail running is the worst sport. The combination of your lack of sight and just torn cartilage and all the damage you've done to your ankles playing sports, like you shouldn't be trail running. Except it's made your ankles a lot stronger because you are doing it, right? Yes. So exactly. there's that. Yeah, no, exactly. Mm-hmm. So I, I try to use a trekking pole more and more now just for some of the uphill climbing, but a lot of it just for balance and keeping me upright. And also feeling a little bit around, you know, what's in front of me, particularly hiking uphill. I can still use it almost as a white cane where I'm feeling, you know, if there's a big step in front of me and my guide calls out big step, I can get a sense of how big that step is. And then also going in downhills on really technical terrain, I can't really see the difference between a three-foot step off or or a three-inch step off or half a foot or a foot. So using that trekking pole to actually be able to tap where my foot should go or on creek crossings, placing the rigid tether or the trekking pole where my foot should go. I place my foot, I pull it, and I do it again like that. So the trekking poles come in really helpful for that. So I'm visualizing this race that you're putting on. I can co-direct with you. You be the race director. Nice. So it's going to be hilly, yeah. right? A lot of climbing, runnable descent. Yeah. So something fun and a little bit faster. Yeah. What else is happening there? If just our guests had limited sight, what else would happen at this race that would make it unique and a, just a completely different experience that the rest of us just maybe don't comprehend yet but could have learn and appreciation through you? I don't know. What would That's the aid stations be like? What would the finish line be like? One of the reasons why I love trail race finish lines is because they're quiet enough so you know when they're coming, but there are also enough people around where you get that celebratory feel. So, I don't know. Um, one, I, I wish trail races had more traditional finish lines because I run trail races and I'm like running a hundred Where feet. the hell is the finish line? Yeah, I'm like, yeah. where is this? Yeah. You know, because every races. road race, is you know, you're always going over line? time in that. Yeah, and I'll, <laughs> yeah. Like, I'll keep on running. My guide's like, you're done, you're done. I'm like, oh, sorry, I didn't know we're kind of through the finish line. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, an actual timing that would be great. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a big fan, so... In the blindness community, there's this concept of, like, dining in the dark or even running races, 5Ks, blindfolded. I'm not actually a huge fan of that just because that's really just you folks have the ability to take the blindfolds off. And I think when it's done, you can do it right by just having a lot of awareness and consciousness building around here's where we're at, right? And here are the different experiences that I experience as a runner. Like, I don't actually have the ability to take off that blindfold. Um, But also, you know, there's only... 5% 5% of folks who are blind are totally blind and have absolutely no sight or no light perception. So 95% of us have some usable vision. So even when if you're doing a dining in the dark where you wear a blindfold and you have to figure out how to use silverware and find your food and using the clock directional method, um, that's really not what majority of folks experience. because we realistic. Have, we have some usable vision. So okay. in thinking about races, you know, sure, it may be cool to have everyone run a race blindfold, but... Mm-hmm. I'm not running a race blindfolded or without any sight right now. Mm-hmm. Um, some folks are, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, that's not the experience that I'm going through in a race right now. So it's a it's, great question, but I don't have a solid answer to it. I was wondering if there were things like the aid station experience mm-hmm. or the festival experience that could be better. And as a mm-hmm. race director um, and 
really wanting to have all kinds of challenged athletes, honestly, mm-hmm. at our events and yeah. being really wanting to have these conversations and be yeah. educated. Um, we're interested in these little kind of details, and I'm sure yeah. there's plenty of people as well. So maybe there are subtle nuances. Also, maybe it's just some crazy-ass idea, idea that you have. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. I mean, from a logistics, <laughs> you know, yeah. As an athlete, you could come up with some random thing. We hear crazy stuff all the time. People yeah. always want to know, why don't you do this or that? You know, they have their idea of what would be cool at a race. Yeah. I haven't given a tremendous amount of thought pre. I mean, I do. I mean, I think part of just on the very basic logistical level, it's, you know, I talked to race directors a lot about it's good for volunteers and all course staff to know that there's runners of different abilities on course Mm -hmm. just because when they're aid stations you know my guides help me a lot at aid stations but at times I also want them just to be able to decompress and take care of their own needs and there are certainly times where you know if I'm only wearing a blind bib on my back and I'm like oh is there watermelon here and a volunteer will be like oh it's right here right you yeah. say here, I have absolutely no idea what that means. Mm, okay. Um, so having some awareness that there are folks out in the course that you can help with. And then I just think, you know, trying to create spaces and finish lines that are not necessarily obstacle-free, but that individuals can move more uh, freely through. Um, I think also, That's a great point, you know, actually. separating out. Particularly, it's hard to do if I'm, you know, Saturday's race, I would assume I'm the only person who's visually impaired showing up. But if there's a race where there's more than one or there's a group of folks, you know, communicating to individuals beforehand, like where are the porta potties, where are the aid stations, where's the med tent beforehand, here's how the race is going to play out, a little bit of the course description. So a race briefing. Yeah, so a race briefing for That's those folks, idea. for the staff is, is really important. Um, so some of the layout and logistics of it is, is very helpful. Um, yeah. Those are things easy, easy right, yeah. to work on, honestly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I actually greatly appreciate, you know, when I got a call from, I think it was Larry from, from Race Slow, and I think I'm going to reference it later today, is, you know, part of part of my goal in working with race directors is I don't necessarily, even though folks are always willing to do more work to be inclusive, is I want to try to minimize the amount of work, right? Because it's just human nature. Like, you don't want to do more work. And I know that it's more work for, you know, you and Larry to put together a map and figure out, so here's where Kyle can transition his guides and that sort of stuff. So part of it is, you know, embracing the individuals that want to do that, but also trying to figure out, like, how can we make that as little of an impact as possible? Um, And that's a big piece of whether it's a 5K road race with a couple thousand folks or or a smaller trail race. Um, and, And also work of race directors to, you know, be flexible, right? So the trekking pool thing, you know, there are a lot of races where they don't allow, they don't allow yeah. including Vermont 100. But when I started working with Amy and the race director there and we set up an athletes with disability division, mm-hmm. you know, essentially every guideline that's built in is built in with unless requested, you know, so yes, there are no trekking pools, but if you request them, then let's accommodate them. Or if there's only a certain amount of aid stations with crew access, but I need to transition guides at a 20-mile mark instead of having them hang in the course for 30 miles. Let's figure out a way to address that and sure we can accommodate, you know, one extra or an extra car, you know. Yeah. Like when I ran Vermont 100 two years ago, you know, I at one point had to have two cars on the course just because I had to get guides to six different stations, but then also getting back and sure, the time shuttle out. Yeah, so, you know, the RD and Amy partly because she guides me. Um, was, and she's awesome. And she is awesome. And she was incredibly flexible in saying, sure, we give you another, another permit, but also try to be, you know, be respectful of it. 
you know, so we did, you know, we didn't try to overuse it, but there were two aid stations where we just had to shuttle folks back and forth. So, um, you know, I think a big piece of it is you always want to not create an unlevel playing field, but there are also accommodations that you can set in place to allow folks to, to participate up to their potential. And that, I think at the end of the day, that's what we all want. Like, you know, I don't want to create an unfair advantage. You know, when we talk about pacers and muling, yeah, I don't want my guide to mule, but there are certainly times if I roll into an aid station, like I need them to pull food for me. Right. And maybe it'll happen a little bit more quickly than someone just getting food on their own, but I can't see really what's on the table. So, they're going to have to do that for me. Yeah, yeah. It's a reasonable accommodation. Exactly, exactly. Well, it's been a real pleasure getting to know you and understanding a little bit, getting some insight into your experience running and on the trails. We're happy to have you here. I wanted to see if just kind of in closing thoughts, sharing with our audience, if there was anything in particular that you wanted to share. Um, you know, Endurance Town USA is... It's a community. It's a state of mind that we're building. It's all aspects of endurance industry and sports, people who are running, racing, producing, brands even. So that's our audience. And in speaking to that audience, do you, do you have any words for them? I think the trail running community and the endurance community is already in tr- incredibly supportive and inclusive. I, so I think just one, continuing to do that and also continuing, particularly when we talk about brands and sponsors that athletes with all abilities have the opportunity to market and be part of brands and be sponsored athletes. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about elite runner status and entries into races, there's always an upside to having athletes of all abilities on your course and participating Mm -hmm. in your race. And there's also tremendous amount of opportunities to support, whether it's someone who's blind or visually impaired or an amputee who's running with two blades and needs a guide on both sides to help create safety for him and other racers. There's tremendous amount of opportunities, whether it's through Red, White, and Blue or Achilles International or United in Stride. And I think the, the barrier, the single largest barrier for runners who are blind or visually impaired continues to be access to guides. Okay. So uh, considering, you know, volunteering to be a sighted guide, it's a great way if you're running five days a week, you can even take your shake out your recovery run to pace and guide someone, um, you know, one day a week. And so it's a great way to wrap in your volunteer work within something that you love doing. Fantastic. So that's an invitation, it sounds like. Certainly an invitation for me or for right. the other hundred or a couple hundred folks who are out there running and, and participating in road races and trail marathons and so forth. Okay. Well, I accept that invitation. I think it would be an honor, and there's probably plenty of other people that feel the same way. Yeah. Yeah. No, one of my uh, best friend's daughter goes to Cal Poly Tech, so he's super right. excited that he's like, oh, can you... It's like, oh, hopefully you've recruited a couple of guides, you know, so now I can run with someone when I come down and visit. So, and he's a rock star, so. Perfect. Well, yeah. We look forward to seeing you out on the course, and I'm sure you're going to have a stellar day out there. It's absolutely magnificent, and um, you and I will be running together soon. Excellent. Sounds great. Thanks for the opportunity and for supporting me and others uh, doing what we love doing. Absolutely. Thank you, Kyle, for carving out so much of your time to sit down with Sam and I today. If you would like to know more about Kyle, by clicking on the show notes below. 
and thank you for joining us on this adventure to Endurance Town USA, where we get the opportunity to sit down with truly remarkable people living the endurance lifestyle, and through conversations and storytelling, find out their why for doing what it is they do. Thanks again to our partners at Race Slow and their Slow Ultra coming up this October. And if you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe today to get the latest Endurance Town USA podcast delivered directly to your mobile device. You can also find us online at EnduranceTownUSA.com, where we have links to all of our podcasts, some awesome storytelling, and a lot more to come as we grow. We appreciate you listening, and we'll catch you the next time we go on this journey to Endurance Town USA. Bring it back.